Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Young Contemptibles podcast. And today I'm joined by Pete and we're going to review the 2017 film Dunkirk. So Dunkirk was written and directed by Christopher Nolan and the cast includes stellar names such as Cillian Murphy, Tom Hardy and Harry Styles, who is Jake's favourite actor, I'm led to believe. And uh, the film had a budget of between 100 and 150 million US dollars, so a huge budget on the film. And, and it has received rave reviews and both Pete and I, along with Joe Bristol, actually went to watch the film in the cinema shortly after it was released. So, so Pete, what were, you, what were your first expectations, um, you know, sort of in the car on the way to going to watch the film? So my first expectations of it was because obviously there was obviously the media build up to it as well with trailers and stuff like that. They weren't really given too much away. And the way I sort of perceived it, it was almost going to be a remake of the uh, 1950s film starring Johnny Mills. That's, that's what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be something along the lines of like a remake of that. That's what I thought it was going to be. But uh, how wrong I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, admittedly, I actually hadn't watched the, uh, the 50s uh, John Mills film before watching the, uh, the 2017 film Dunkirk. So... I kind of didn't really have that in the back of my mind, but I did expect really big things of of Dunkirk as uh, you know the 2017 uh, film. I was really looking forward to watching it because at the time I was really developing my interest in World War Two, and uh, I'd, I'd been told by my father that my uh, granddad, so his dad, was actually at Dunkirk in 1940. But since then, it's actually come uh, come to be that he wasn't. He was actually part of the Operation Ariel and Operation Cycle. Um, sort of uh, evacuations, which arguably are more interested in a cracking film idea out there if anyone's listening. Um, so I had some real high hopes for the film. So the expectations were high. The bar was was high indeed, especially with the fact that the 
80th anniversary of you know the actual Dunkirk of 1940 was looming so it was only three years off at that point and we we had these plans didn't we Pete to put the uh, Oxen Books group together with a view to participating in the um, not well the, it would have been the 80th anniversary march for for Dunkirk so the uh, the bar was very very high wasn't it <laughs> it was indeed yeah um because that was the premise of why the society was created, really, was to get a group of blokes together to go and do the Dunkirk March. Um, and then that sort of that went through. Um, and then we ended up getting booked in at uh, was it Mount, Mount St. Oli, Mount St. Allo. It's just by Arras, it is. Um, so we ended up, we were going to do that instead for the 80th anniversary. So, yeah, so the expectations were, were quite high with it. But, yeah, it's... Uh, with the budget that they had, I was, especially with um, the way cinema is now with the special effects and things like that, it's like, I, I thought the original Dunkirk in the 50s was good. And I thought, right, now it's being made in modern times. It's going to be something very, very, very good. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We'll, we'll, we'll do a conclusion at the end. I mean, overall, I thought mm. the film itself was good. But the, the expectations, like looking back, you always think, blimey, a new World War II film. Like, this is going to be great. It's going to be an all-action shooter. It's going to be 100% authentic. You know, you kind of put yourself into that full, sort of lure, lure yourself into that sense of security, don't you, by thinking this is going to be, you know, absolutely groundbreaking. And, uh, you know, talking, you know, moving, moving on, talking about the, the plot itself, um, it's kind of broken down, isn't it, into into three main sort of sections of the film, which I it personally is, yeah. really like. I've got to be honest, I like the way that they've they've put them across because it's different. Um, so, give give us a background on on the uh, on the plot, Pete. So, the general plot of the film is you're seeing it from three perspectives. So, you're seeing it from land, sea, and air, um, which was very cleverly done. I think because um, there's certain bits in the film that, that get confusing, but then it all makes sense as the film progresses. So I thought that was uh, very good. So the, um, so obviously there is going to be spoilers in this podcast. Um, so the land element is you're following this young lad who has just made it to Dunkirk and it's him trying to get off the beach, basically. Um, and then you got the sea where it's a bloke in a little boat and he's making his way across the channel um, to go and pick blokes up. Uh, and then you've got the air, which is the uh, Spitfire pilot. So he's uh, sort of going across the channel, giving cover to the uh, ships coming back from Dunkirk. Yeah, I never thought I'd have seen Alfie Solomons flying a Spitfire. That was uh, that was a bit of a surprise. But if <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, a Peaky Binders fan, you'll of course understand that. But yeah, it, it was really, it was genuinely a really clever way of telling those three stories and you know intertwining it because a lot of people just think that, you know, Dunkirk is just about, you know, the, the seaborne side of it. It's just about the evacuation. It was great that they actually told the story, not the whole story in the run-up to the evacuation, but just a little snippet of, like, the actual story of the ordinary, you know, uh, Tommy Atkins. That, I liked that element. I thought that was very, very good. And um, I, I can almost sense a few butts coming, but I'm going to hold back with them. Um, so that that really, you know, I did like that. But I was a massive fan of just the ordinary infantry soldier, none of this officer sort of nonsense and all that. So the, the standard story, that kind of, you know, really, um, really appealed to me. And then intertwining it with the, the air element and bringing the Air Force in, which, you know, we're always forgotten about, in, you know, with Dunkirk. And they were very, very active, not necessarily over Dunkirk, but more in land as, you know, research and time's gone by. 
this, this has all come to, you know, the, the front and center. But then including the little ships was really, really nice. Um, it was almost quite an emotional scene towards the end of the film, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. But it was a really nice way of intertwining, not just the, not just the uh, you know, sea part of it, not just the land part, but also the civilian aspect of it and also the, uh, the Royal Air Force. And I have to say, when the, one of the first scenes come in, of the air force um i was i was admiring the b-type flying helmet because they're all all of those um bits of bobs are actually made by sefton flying company and they're a fantastic reproduction company and uh, i was admiring them almost drooling over them if i'm honest but uh <laughs> i'm getting carried away aren't i i'm getting carried away so um pete tell us tell us about the opening scene because um this is where you've got your um your sort of uh well it's a section of infantry soldiers isn't it who are sort of walking through the streets of dunkirk yeah, it is. So there's no real sound to it. You're just seeing these blokes who just uh, entered Dunkirk itself. Um, and they're sort of having a little mooch around, seeing what's about, probably, uh, looking, looking to see if there's any food around, things like that. Um, I don't know why some of them are wearing greatcoats, to be quite honest. It's the middle of summer. <laughs> so you know, I've something I found really bizarre. But And then suddenly they get bumped. Um they get bumped and they have to try and get away. So they they're sort of they're running away, um, jumping jumping over walls and all the rest of it to get away from the German fire. And that's where you then meet the uh, sort of main protagonist, I suppose, who's the lad you're going to follow, who's trying to get his way off the beach. What I did like in there is when you first see them, they got the leaflets being dropped as well. I thought that was pretty. That was quite a good touch actually with the leaflets. Yeah, that that was a nice little touch. I did like that. It was um, that was quite quite impressive. It sort of sets the scene very well. But like you've said, it's little things. I I I'll be honest with you. I mean, we could be here all night splitting hairs about you know kit, and I'm sure we'll we'll touch briefly on you know sort of authenticity shortly. But a couple of things in the opening scene, like you've mentioned, that the great coat. You know, you, you see all the guys. Well, most of the guys wearing great coats, and then uh, you know, then you see one guy who's gasping for a drink and he's drinking out a hose pipe and you think, mm, you know, if he's that hot that you're desperate for a drink, then maybe you should be wearing a great coat. But there we go. And then you start looking at things like the webbing and Blanco and battle dress. And you start going, mm, opening up a bit of a can of worms. But the one thing I've got to take from the opening scene, which made me kind of think, oh, is this going to be another Hollywood film? Was when they got they got bumped in the street by you know the Germans and there's machine guns going off and there's rifles picking you know really accurate rifle fire picking off one two three four guys and then the one guy who of course is the main character very Hollywood esque is running in a straight line down the street and then jumps over um, you know a barn sort of like gate and he doesn't get hit at all but everyone else does get hit and it, you just think mm, you know maybe that could have been done a little bit better it's typical Hollywood um, you know sensationalism in um, in that sense, but I did just kind of come to the end of the the opening scene. I thought it was a it was a great story where you have the um and again another spoiler dare I say where you have the the French soldier uh, who we, you don't know is French until the the sort of end of, well it's about three quarters of the way through the film where he is you know putting on all the British battle dress he's desperate to uh, desperate to get on a, on a ship and, and you know get away from the Germans. So I thought that was a really interesting little touch at the end of the opening scene. Yes, it is. And then once he gets away from the fire, you actually see French soldiers as well. So there's quite it's quite um, inclusive. The film is like it does give a little uh, tip of the hats to various branches and people because he gets to like, it's a uh, fortified position manned by these uh, French soldiers who obviously they, they shoot at him first because um, he just comes w- waltzing around a corner pretty much. But um, but then he 
you know, they stop for and they realise that he's a British soldier. Um, he then jumps over the sandbags and it's all manned by Frenchmen. So that's just sort of like first tip of the hat to the French because the French do appear again because you see them out on the mole at one point trying to get on the mole and you've got the officer trying to turn them away saying, you know, you you, you ain't coming in, mate. <laughs> it is good that the French are in the film because they are, they are forgotten. And of course, quite a you know, significant number of French are actually obviously evacuated during during Dynamo, but the one, just thinking of the opening scene again, it's just jogged my memory where, uh, you know, the main my character who jumps over the wall and he ends up in his street and all the French, who are man in the, the sort of sandbags, are shooting at him. And then you just hear him kind of, you know, very faintly say, oh, you know, anglais, anglais. And you think, you know, if those guys are firing rifles and firing machine guns, they're not going to hear what you're saying. You know, they can't see him either. And it's a bit, you just think to yourself again, you know, could that potentially have been done a little bit better? You know, I mm. dare say it could. But it's just a little bit, mm, you know. So the first, the first scene finishes. What were your, what were your, um, you know, sort of first impressions at the end of this sort of opening scene with the height of the action? Where, where were you thinking? Where was your mind at that point? Uh, at that point, my mind was, well, Dunkirk looks very tidy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, because that was um, something that, that really sort of screened out to me. It was like, well, there's no bombed out buildings. There's there's no there's no rubbish out on the road or anything like that. It's like, you know, granted, it was, you know, it was filmed on location at Dunkirk, you know, which is pretty good in itself. But then that also takes that sort of realism of it away. Because when they're there, you'd expect to see like blown up buildings and rubble everywhere and things like that. Um so that was the first thing that that did that 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 that's that's what that first scene left me thinking was yeah I could see that what you was trying what he was trying to do with going with the, with actually filming on location but the problem is that's still a functional place so it's it, you know you couldn't just rip down the buildings just for just for the movie but you know that that's where for me it's like well that you know fair enough yeah you go to some locations that were the real locations which is you know even if a couple of scenes were filmed in those locations is cool in itself. But I think to tell the story properly, I think that should have been done on a, in a, on a, on a set somewhere just to show, you know, for the average person on the street who doesn't know much about world war two and the dynamo operation is, it gives them more of a feel to what the place would have actually looked like where it was just bedlam. Yeah, and, and Bedlam it exactly was. And you know, th- thinking about those sort of scenes, one of the things that struck me was the the significant lack of, um, you know, destroyed, um, you know, equipment, vehicles, um, and all that sort of stuff. There didn't seem to be that much like wreckage on the on the beaches and in the streets. And as you know, primary source evidence in terms of photographs of all these, you know, wrecked vehicles where they've knocked the sumps out and drained all the oil, so they can't be used. The the engines, of course, and you know, all all the various bits of equipment. The only time you really see that is where the engineers start trying to make um and indeed they did make a uh, a kind of extra sort of mole uh, going out with all you know vehicles and so forth so could evacuate guys off onto you know, the little ships and so forth to take them to the main ships but you don't there's a, there's a distinct lack of vehicles and equipment a couple of shots you do see um you know uh, smles just piled up against the wall and um, there's probably a couple of hundred of them but you don't really see things like, you know, there's loads of Bren guns, of course, left there. You don't see them. You don't see like bits of webbing and equipment and, and so forth. There is there is a distinct lack of setting the scene, like you've pointed out, in terms of, you know, bombed out buildings and so forth. And to 
to give it the you know the, the viewer an authentic uh, representation of what Dunkirk did look like. You know, you've you've got to cover that. So that was a little bit of a little bit of a sad thing to to not see that. But it was great. It was filmed on location because okay, you're not going to get better than the original. Um, you know, sort of location as that sense, but it would have really made it pop, so to speak, to have had you know those vehicles and you know like casualties and you know dead dead soldiers and all this equipment strewn everywhere, like the original photos we've seen, uh, you know, of Braves Dunes and Dunkirk and so forth, where there's you know all these guys lounging around, sort of thing, waiting for their lift home, and there is all these vehicles and equipment just strewn everywhere, and and you know artillery pieces as well. There's a, that's one item that I actually can't think that I saw in any of the. Uh, footage at Dunkirk, um, uh, you know, in this particular film, which is a bit of a shame. So there is a distinct lack of those bits of equipment for sure uh, in the film. So we've talked about first impressions. We've got the plot and the opening scene. So what do you make dis you know, distinctly of the of the visuals in the film, Pete? So the visual to me is a bit like the ruined scenario. So like, he, he gets to the beach and it's like there's only 10 blokes stood there on the beach. <laughs> um, again, it's going back to that sort of chaos and like all that debris screwed about. It's um, it, the beach just looks empty when in reality it would have been quite packed um, to how it would have been originally. Uh, that was one of the main visuals that I saw, but something I did pick up from like, well, I've done my research on it. Um, was the fact of where some of the film shot, some of the shots that he did, um, or indeed he, he incorporated some original photographs. So there's like there's a photograph of a bloke on the uh, beach at Dunkirk where he's actually firing up at an aircraft, um, and he actually incorporates that into one of the scenes. So they're getting um, dive bombed, and the lad's taking cover, and just just in the background you can see this bloke laying on his back firing up in the air. And also at the end of the film, um, you see all the helmets that are lined up along the beach, where there's that photograph from after the operation had finished. Yeah, really nice little touch that was to see, you know, those those photographs and even little bits of short bits of film, you know, sort of uh, written into the into the script. That was really cool. And just thinking about the script, talk about the script. Um, in the research to to sort of watching the film and doing his podcast, I didn't realise it, but Chris Nolan in the nineties, he actually um was in the channel and that's where he first had the idea to do a film uh, on Dunkirk. And he only wrote the script for it in 2015. He kind of delayed it because it was to be in his mind, his ultimate masterpiece. So we got a number of uh, feature films under his belt and he had the view of, and indeed he, he saw it through of actually filming Dunkirk as kind of a documentary esque uh, piece of cinema, which like we've said, it has you know real appeal in that sense. I really, really like the, you know, the visuals, like from an artistic point of view, where you've got the, you know, lovely Spitfires and aircraft doing a thing. You've got the little ships incorporated, like the, the cinematography in it is really, really good. It's top, it's top notch. In fact, um, some of the, the dialogue's not particularly great. The acting, I think is good, but the visuals are one of the strongest points for me in the film. It's beautifully filmed if I'm being completely honest, but it was nice to know the backstory of how he came to, actually uh, actually wrote the script for the film and where his interest came from so he was inspired by by the actual uh, channel which is you know quite um quite an interesting little thing really it was uh, you know, it continues to ins inspire people in that sense but we've we've talked about obviously the visuals and shot uh, like individual shots of the of the film is there any key um scene or particular shot that really um sort of made you think wow that's special 
I think it was uh, the use of real aircraft, I think, because as you know, with Christopher Nolan, he doesn't really like using like animated effects or anything like that. And to actually use real aircraft to film a lot of the shots was actually quite spectacular. And you can see that in the end product as well, but they're actually using air, real aircraft and some CGI thing that they've created for the screen. Yeah, I think I think the, the strongest part of you know the visuals and the shots, definitely the aircraft, that is beautifully filmed. And the aircraft that are using it, particularly Spitfire, I actually saw it at, uh, at Duxford uh, last weekend, which was really cool. It's part of their uh, current evolution of the Spitfire exhibition, which is which is quite nice. So um, yeah, I have to agree that the and concur with you that the the favourite shots of mine were the aircraft. I, I really thought they were majestic, the way they captured them. Real, as I said earlier, a fantastic piece of uh, cinematography in that sense. Really, really impressive. So, Pete, the hot potato that's going to be for this film, because obviously we're living historians, we have a really keen eye for, for detail when it comes to, you know, uniform, equipment, how it's worn, what it should look like. You know, sort of take take it to pieces, take it to the gubbins and let us know what your overall thoughts were of the um kit and equipment used in the film let me open the list that <laughs> <laughs> kind of worms open yeah well well we, we we touched on the great coat thing earlier on um the uh the thing is it's it's how it's how pedantic you really want to get <laughs> you go, well, you're clearly got so much time on your hands that you're going to sit there and notice or you don't go out and actually have a social life because no one else would actually know that. You know, it's like there's little things like I don't think I saw one piece of reduction webbing. I don't think. They, uh, so it's like little things like that. So it's like, I don't think, yeah, so I don't think I saw anybody wearing reduction, reduction weave webbing. Um, one thing I did note on a couple of them, though, they were wearing um the entrenching tool covers they were the square ones what they had what they got issued sort of in 1940 um before they reverted back to the uh, first world war style one so that was um that was something that i picked up on a couple of times on a few blokes like you mentioned earlier on uh blanco color as well um the blanco color's wrong you've also got that um colonel who's like liaising with the naval um officer on the mole who's uh he's a full colonel but he doesn't have any tabards on so as a full colonel he'd have his little um red gore he'd have red gorgettes on which he doesn't uh so that's that's one thing i picked up on i think i saw a few dms boots as well to be fair like when they're running and things like that um you can see the uh you can see like the rubber sole on the bottom of the boots as well but one thing i did like with kit was harry styles because um, they, because he was actually wearing um, the Scottish version of the SD jacket, uh, which was which would probably denote him as a um, as a territorial who hadn't by that point received all of his kit. So he's wearing thirty seven pattern trousers, um, but he's still wearing his um, SD tunic. But he's also got his shoulder titles of the proper slip on titles. So I thought that was the that was a that was a a nice little attention to detail. I thought. Yeah, I have to admit, I actually didn't I didn't notice that, but I'm gonna have to go back and watch that because one of the one of the, on my sort of crib sheet of notes, I did meant I did want to mention about slip slip on titles. Um, more more importantly, that it was good to see that the guards I think it was the cold stream. It's good to see them with the red shoulder titles. Obviously, they were the only sort of core that wore them at the time. 
but you don't see slip-ons on uh, titles on any of the other guys, I was going to say. Mm. But you obviously mentioned that, you know, Harry Styles, uh, Jake's favourite actor, I'm sure we'll be listening. Um, yeah. He's um, and a musician, I believe, uh, as well. But anyway, there is there is quite a few things. So a couple of the, the glaring points I wanted to pick up on was I don't think that I saw a single respirator have a sack um, during the film, which to me is really really bad because yeah obviously that is massive well, it's your most important piece of anti-gas equipment and there was even by the you know 1944 prior to d-day that's for obviously four years later you've still got guys being issued with uh, you know by then the lightweight respirator but this is a piece of equipment which is you know arguably just as important as your rifle is and on that note you do see a lot of people just you know leaving rifles not taking them with them just throwing them away and just running away and I yeah think you do in the film i don't I think there's a time and a place where they will say, you know, leave your weapons, ditch your weapons. It'd be more of an order. Whereas, mm, you know, much mm. like today, sold soldiers are drilled into them, you know, without your weapon, you cease to be a soldier. So you have to have your weapon with you to do your job. And I thought that was a little bit, mm, didn't really ring very home true, if I'm honest, um, mm. the way it was portrayed on the film that is. Um, but yeah, Haversacks massively. Um, that was a massive glaring uh, error for me. There needed to be a lot more Mark V uh, haversacks to be particular. Gas capes is another one as well. Yeah, I was about Did to mention spot. gas capes. Yeah, mm. I kind of sensed you were in the wings waiting to mention that. Um, I did spy a couple, but again, a really, really important piece of anti-gas equipment. You don't see it. I, I think there was only one scene where I saw a couple of them. Haversacks on webbing as well. Uh, that's one thing that is very, very sparse in the film. So you can see, uh, you know, they've gone down the route of, you know, keeping it as cheap as possible i understand that with the film but if you've got a budget of 100 to 150 million you know it's simple stuff and like, like you've said you've picked up on the same point i'm just going to mention which is about reduction weave webbing so the ironic thing is is reduction weave webbing is actually uh, easier and cheaper to find um now as it has been for many many years because they're already making the three-part straps during the height of the war post-war they went back almost um you know wholly to the reduction weave um, straps. That was, it was just little things like that were kind of, you know, griping on me a little bit, but talking about, as I mentioned earlier, the kit of the, uh, the pilots, um, absolutely superb. The uh, flying helmets, uh, of course they're made by Sefton. They will be fantastic, but they, uh, they look, look, looks absolutely gleaming on the film. Almost maybe, maybe want to put an order in for one, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, they did look really good. Um, and it's the variation of kit between them as well, because you got the bloke who ditched in the channel, who ends up getting picked up by the geezer on the little boat. Uh, but then you've got the Tom Hardy character, and he's wearing one of those like, all-in-one flight suits. Yeah, so there's like a little bit of variation of um, kit, and he's obviously got his woolly jumper on as well, his turtleneck jumper. It's something I picked up on as well. So there was a nice little mix-up of... Um, of kit being worn by them both there was also michael kane makes an appearance that's another thing i forgot to mention because when we went because uh when they're getting their orders through on the intercom it's michael kane doing a cameo role as the character he played in uh battle of britain i believe when he did the battle of britain film in the 60s that was like a cameo role <laughs> yeah yeah I, I really like that that is that is awesome i didn't know that either so that's uh now now that you've said it i can actually hear his voice like sort of in my head no i haven't gone mad uh, before anyone says anything but yeah that's that's pretty cool i didn't know that so you know i think 
if we're kind of bringing it down to like, you know, the scores on the doors, because we could go on about, you know, accuracy and kit forever, but, you know, I think we'd both probably just fall asleep by the time we get to the end of the conversation. <laughs> and so will the listeners. <laughs> and yeah, if they're still with us, if they're still with us, of course. Um, we kind of give it, you know, a young contemptibles rating out of, out of 10. So I'm going to go first and I'm going to score it. Um, I'm going to score it a seven. And I'm going to give it a seven because I think the actual... Artistic shots of the film are really, really good. The story, the way it's told, is exceptional. It's one of my favourite films because the first time I watched it, I was almost scratching my head after and thinking, that doesn't really make much sense. That doesn't. I'm going to have to watch it again. And it was only on the second or third time of watching it, I started thinking, ah, I'll, I'll get it now. It's like, you know, the, the sea story is so long and so, you know, the air is only an hour. And that makes a lot of sense because you do think, oh, he's in the air for a long time. He must have a lot yeah. of fuel. But actually, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And you can see in some of the uh, shots earlier in the film, how they all tie into each other. I think that's really, really good. So that's the real strong points. But I do think the negative for me, um, just keeping it short and sweet, really, is that they they could have achieved so much more from the film if they made some simple little tweaks, which arguably would have cost less um, to uh, to portray. But there we go. It's a, it's, a, it's a 7 out of 10 from me. So come on, Pete, let's have it from you. It's like X Factor, this is, isn't it? It is, not it? You're not going to hit the golden buzzer, are you? No, 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 not at all. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Same thing with you. It's the um, the sort of confusion. It's like, hang on a minute, this doesn't ring right. It's, what threw me is when you see Cillian Murphy because you got a shot when Cillian Murphy. I won't. I won't give too much away, just in case someone has seen it. But he's in. A, he's in a location, but then suddenly he's somewhere else because then. But he turns up through another uh, story in the story. If you know what I mean. And I'm like, hang on a minute he's meant to be on a bloody fishing boat. <laughs> and then it, like you said, it's, it's the time length of everything. And it does all then because ultimately all three stories do actually cross over together at one point in the film. So they all do converge at that one, at this one particular point that it all sort of disperses again. But um, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd give it a six or a seven. I would. Gonna have to only be for an exact answer here, Pete. Yeah, you are, aren't you? Um, yeah, so it feel like the story was very good, and it was, and and it, yeah, I like the story. The film shots are very good, very much like what you've already said, Steve. To be honest, you know, you know what I'm. I'm one of the when it comes to things like this. Um, what does it for me is the accuracy and like and what people are wearing and stuff like that. But I've taught myself over the years to watch a film three times to appreciate it for what it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> So you go so, with six or seven then? Come on, let's have it. I'll, 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 I'll go with the seven because if I was a complete novice and didn't know what I was looking at, I'd be like, that's very good. And then end of the day as well, with something like that, if that spurred somebody else's interest to learn more about the subject or indeed actually maybe contemplate on getting into the living history world of doing that, then it's a good thing, isn't it? Absolutely is, you know, like we've we've said in previous episodes with with you know uh, series like Sharp, um, you know, feels like Bridge Too Far. You know, yes, we know they're not one hundred percent accurate, and we could go on about it for hours. We're not going to, uh, but they they bring people in. You know, Sharp is a, is a series that I watched as a kid, absolutely loved. Uh, discovered the Napoleonic era, and much like yourself, I'm sure propelled you into the world of Napoleonic uh, living history. So if you know Dunkirk's got one or two people interested in the subject to learn more about it and understand the, the real history, what happens to real people, real life events, then 
you know, I think it's done its job really. So that is a combined score of 14 out of 20 or seven out of 10 to keep it simple. So I think that's a really good score. So move over rotten tomatoes. Uh, the contemptibles <laughs> are taking over uh, proceedings here, but I do say that in jest, but this is, this is something we will um, revisit and we will pick, you know, a couple of films in future and, uh, you know, talk about them. If there's any new releases, we'll tackle them as and when, but for the, you know, sort of short to, to medium future, we'll go back through some of the, uh, you know, 21st century releases of war films and, and give them our review and go over them with a fine uh, tooth comb. So, it's worth saying that Dunkirk, the 2017 version, which we've obviously reviewed in this uh, episode, is currently on Prime. So if you've got Amazon Prime, it's free to watch on there. Of course, you can always you know, pick the Blu-ray or DVD, if anyone remembers them. Um, you know, uh, There's loads of different ways you can watch it. You can obviously go and purchase a film on the net too. It's worth a watch, if I'm honest. It's a, it's a very entertaining film, very, very good. And while you're at it, go and watch the, uh, I think it's 1956 when... John Mills, um, Dunkirk, come out. That's a very good film, isn't it, Pete? It is, yeah. That's why when I first watched the film, I thought if this is going to be a remake of the Johnny Mills film, they've got to do a bloody good job of it. And then when I was thinking as well, obviously, like the cast list had been uh, released. It's like Tom Hardy's in it. I'm like, well, who's Tom Hardy going to be? Oh, is he going to? I reckon he's going to be the big old boy who's in it, who's got the Bren gun in it. <laughs> <laughs> Two films that are definitely, definitely worth uh, a watch. They are very entertaining. And to be honest, I think I might have to rewatch uh, the John Mills version of Dunkirk because I haven't watched it for a while. But there we go. That is The Young Contemptibles with the first uh, ever film review. So that was a 2017 version of Dunkirk. It's on Prime currently, so go and give it a watch. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then make sure you hit the subscribe button, the little bell icon, so you can uh, listen to future episodes. Also, if you want to support the channel, there's links to our PayPal donate so you can help support uh, our monthly uh, costs of keeping the podcast going. And why not join us on Patreon? There's loads of benefits on there. There's nearly 50 people signed up as well. You can join from as little as £1 a month and you get loads of content. We could be here all uh, all evening talking about the uh, the perks that you get, but go and hit the link in the bio and discover it for yourself. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hope you learned something from it. And until next time, thanks for listening to The Young Contemptibles. Yeah.